Drabblecast, episode 442. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Pretty interesting story for you folks this week. Felt like it was going to go all sorts of places that it didn't go and wound up going places I never would have seen coming. But that's the Drabblecast for you. First, though, as is often the case, let's get in the mood with a 100-word Drabble. Drabbles, 100-word stories. Not a word less, not a word more. Why, you ask? Why is there a thing that is that? Because Drabbles force you to think about word economy, and word economy is important to good storytelling. And good stories, well, they're what we're all about telling you here on the Drabblecast. Also, it's a fun way to involve our listeners and our whole huge Drabblecast community of weirdos. These are always selected from our 100-word stories that fans just like yourself post in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org in the Drabble section, or they send it to us via email at submissions at drabblecast.org. So give it a shot. Write a 100-word story. Post it in our forums. See what people think. We've got a great community. Our story this week comes to us from listener Necronominom. It's called Cat Whisperer. Here it goes. Poppet's gaze fixed on a point just over John's right shoulder, pupils dilated, black discs eclipsing the gold corona of her irises. Her body tensed, hackles raised, her needle claws dug into John's thigh. He shifted slightly to dislodge them, if only for a moment, and went on reading his book, resisting the nagging urge to look at the bare wall behind him. There was never anything there, just a cat being a cat. He continued to read, Poppet continued to stare, and the thing in the wall continued to whisper jagged alien words, cosmic truths uttered just for her. Crazy. Does your cat stare at weird corners sometimes, like it's listening to a ghost or weird entity divulge super exciting cat pro tips on how they can transform their business on Amazon with just five steps to triple their passive income with affiliate marketing and- Knowledge. What is that, Jeffrey? What are you looking at? Knowledge. Yeah, all right, but like what specifically- Here in my garage, just bought this uh, new Lamborghini here. Who are you? Fun to drive up here in the Hollywood Hills. Who's saying this stuff? Is that Ty Lopez? You know what I like What's he doing in the corner? Materialistic things? Pancakes. Knowledge. Eh. Cosmic truths uttered just for him. Weirdness with a capital W doesn't always have to be the result of what we know. It can often be just as much a product of what we don't know, or how we deal with someone else's not knowing. Like, you know what I was thinking about the other day? In Toy Story 2, what if Woody just died like halfway through? Like a sudden tragic aneurysm or something. I don't know, it happens. That would be crazy, right? I mean, to you, to me, to all the kids watching, to every single other toy and character in the movie, it'd be basically horrible, except for Andy, who would just keep on doing his thing, you know? Oblivious, carrying around the limp and lifeless corpse of his dear friend the remainder of the movie, talking to it, playing with it, just completely, horrifically, 
mercifully oblivious to this phenomena that's occurred right under his nose. Where was the point I was going with that? Uh, uh, strategies to help increase my cat's passive income each month through Amazon. Knowledge. Things happen, and we don't always have all the information as to how or why or even what happened, or even if, when, or sort of when we do to some degree, that doesn't always mean we know what to do with it. And even if we know what to do with it, that doesn't always fix things and make it right. Our story this week isn't about understanding things or fixing them or making everything all right. It's about how we behave and treat others and cope and support each other when we don't have all the answers and the resources and the solutions that typical stories lead us to believe are innate and inevitable to a happy ending. We bring you The Secret of Theta Pi by Stephanie Gray. Stephanie is a writer of sci-fi and fantasy with work previously published in On Spec, the Canadian magazine of the fantastic and subterranean. The story is an unpublished Drabblecast original. The story is read to you by Avery Brickles. Avery is a swamp witch and beekeeper hailing from Flint, Michigan. She lives in the bayou with her dogs and fiancé in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and plans to get married on a mountaintop this August. She's a proud alumna of Alpha Phi Iota Epsilon Sorority. You can follow Avery's misadventures on Instagram at HoneybeeHiker. And so, without further ado, we bring you The Secret of Theta Pi by Stephanie Gray. We traveled back to Tandy's Cove in a caravan of three, Cindy's Miata leading, followed by the rented van, dirty white with the windows rolled up, and Benita's little blue hatchback bringing up the rear. Twelve hours on the road would be stressful in the best of times, yet in these days of turmoil, there is an easy peace between us. A few of us, Linda who studies the languorous depths of the ocean, and Karen who lives in libraries, cherish the silence, while others, like sporty Benita and Mia, begin to crave one of our petty squabbles just to break up this endless day. Within the guarded confines of the van, Linda and Carolyn watch over our cargo, while Susie sleeps over the wheel well, lulled by the rhythm of the road. They lie low on the piled blankets that cover the scratchy floor, bodies parallel, hips pressed against the side of the 30-gallon Home Depot storage tub that houses our passenger, sloshing inside, wrapped in bungee cords to keep it secured over the rocky roads. We drive on through the morning and afternoon without stopping. At four, burgers and fries at a truck stop McDonald's, stale coffee and cat calls and taking turns in the restroom. Mia without makeup, Cindy with her cell phone turned off, homework backlogged. We are raw and real out here, alone with the tender truths of our sisterhood. We take turns guarding the van while we take in the oily truck stop air, bear the leers, lick the grease from the french fries off our fingers, and move on as quickly as we can. Drivers are switched out, Carolyn taking control of the van so Karen can doze. We regain cell phone service about 20 miles from the ocean and text each other constantly, making up ever-changing call signs. Duck face to purple haze, do you read me? To lighten the mood. Ever since spring break, Lorna had been acting differently. Cindy swore it was an introspective aftermath of a spring fling, and Benita the nervous excitement of graduation. Is it her grades? Karen asked. She's missed so many classes. There's more to life than grades, sweetie, 
said Cindy, pursing her lips in the hallway mirror as she got ready for a date. Is she still with Colt? Carolyn asked. She never said they broke up, but I haven't seen him around. No one had a clear answer, and when posed with the question herself, Lorna always seemed to sidestep the topic, drift away through the mysterious seascape she'd seemed to inhabit since returning from Tandy's Cove. She slept late, missing classes as often as she'd attended them. Divesting herself of her formerly cluttered social calendar, she retreated inward, spending days barricaded in her bedroom at the Theta Pi house, nested in blankets despite the warm weather. She would only leave to venture cautiously to the kitchen and to find food or to shower, which she did religiously, often two or three times a day. Drugs? Linda wondered cautiously, peering up from her deep-sea ecology notes. No, said Mia, six months past her own collapse in a downtown nightclub. She'd have told me. It was Carolyn who first ventured into Lorna's bedroom, breaking through the barricades to reach the secret heart of the matter. Carolyn, who'd been crippled by secrets long before any of us knew her, and to whom we were all grateful. It's okay, she told Lorna, their fingers threading together in the dark. It doesn't matter what it is, you can tell us. We're all here for you. We love you. It was the truth, despite the open secret that set Carolyn's love apart. But Lorna stayed silent as the tomb-like depths of the ocean, and the women of Theta Pi had no choice but to make a reluctant retreat. But the tide always turns, and by the end of March, Lorna was almost back to her old self again. She returned to her classes, haggled with professors for makeup assignments, colored in her social calendar with parties and dates. I told you she'd get over it, said Cindy. Sometimes you just need your space. Carolyn still remembered the wet press of Lorna's palm against her own, the tangy scent despite her constant showers. Something's still not right. It wasn't until Easter weekend that we learned how true those words really were. Susie, the lightest sleeper, was the one who heard her crying in the laundry room. Always crowded and cluttered during the day, a canopy of hanging bras, nylons over open doors. The room was nearly eerie in the cavernous silence of 3 a.m. Lorna was bowed over the laundry sink, scrubbing, hands submerged in dark, soapy water. What are you doing in here? Susie asked. It's fine, Lorna said. It's nothing. Go to bed. Susie, who'd spent more late and messy nights than she could bear to count hiding secrets of her own, knew the frantic, desperate energy it took to believe it was possible to scrub away the reality of a thing. Susie did not go back to bed. Instead, she walked up beside Lorna, laid a hand on her tense, clammy shoulder. Submerged in the water, Lorna's hands had turned blotchy purple, stained and traumatized by the harsh chemicals. Lorna's tears felt oddly cold as they landed on Susie's bare shoulder. Many cephalopods, Linda would tell us later, squirt ink when excited or afraid to blind and confuse their enemies. However, similar to the weapons of the warm-blooded, the ink is more than capable of poisoning those whom it was meant to defend. I could have told you that, said Susie. In the evening, just outside the campgrounds, we pass a road check and it is the most terrifying moment of our lives. 
fumbling for seatbelts, a cacophony of whispers urging each other to be silent. A blanket is thrown hastily over the plastic storage bin, purses piled on top of it to obscure its presence. The sloshing coming from inside suddenly sounds like the churning of rapids. Carolyn smiles out the window at the flashlight signing into her face. Where are you ladies headed? Anything to drink tonight? She answers back in a low, steady voice. We're just going camping, officer. No, nothing to drink, officer. You breathe a sigh of relief as the flashlight is withdrawn and we hear those precious words like a bomb to our panic. That's fine, ladies. Drive safe tonight. Thus freed, the engine churns to life and we head on towards the ocean. Benita led the charge, storming down Fraternity Row with strength of purpose burning in her all-loving warrior's heart. She knocked on the door for nearly five minutes, using the toe of her hiking boot when her knuckles got sore, until finally it was opened by a bleary, hungover undergrad. Is Kevin here? Benita asked, all toned and tattooed six feet of her, with her arms crossed and a steel-spined golf umbrella clutched in her hand. The undergrad stepped away, pointing them up to Kevin's room through the beery detritus of the party. Most of the Sigma Omega boys were still sleeping, if they hadn't stumbled off to class by now. We burst into Kevin's room to the stench of beer and gym socks and Kevin sitting on the bed with a bandaged hand fumbling with a beer tab. What the fuck are you doing here? Get the fuck out of my room! What happened with Lorna? Did she send you here? What did that bitch tell you? She's lying. It's all fucking Colt's fault. He's the one who left her there. I only went after her because he said she was a fucking freak, and I didn't think he meant. His face turned a shade of green. Where is Colt? Benita asked. I thought he dropped out. He did, Kevin shouted, thanks to her. Who wouldn't have after what happened in Tandy's Cove? What did happen in Tandy's Cove? Asked Mia, glaring. You don't know? His eyes widened, a glimmer in them like genuine sympathy, then something else crushing it down. I only know what Colt told me, okay? Kevin looked down at his damaged hand. They'd gone out skinny dipping, late at night. Colt was just folding around, but Lorna started freaking out and running away from him. She slipped, fell into the water over where it was deep, and he thought she'd come up, but he said it looked like something grabbed her and pulled her down. He took a deep breath, staring blankly at the cracked plaster next to his bed, a roofing nail holding up a Playboy centerfold. He swore he thought she was dead. He abandoned her? He knew how it would have looked, Kevin said. The guy always gets blamed. Cindy rolled her eyes. He went back for her. As soon as he got cell service and got her messages, he, he went back and got her. What a fucking hero, said Mia as she and Benita shared an incredulous glance. It's what happened on the way back that I didn't believe, Kevin said, seizing another beer from the mini fridge next to the bed. I thought it must have been Lorna fucking with him, you know, for revenge or something. He points with his bandaged finger. Your friend is one fucked up chick, you know that? What happened? Asked Benita. It was in the motel room on the way back. 
Colt said she was all over him. Nothing beats I almost died sex, am I right? We refrained from commenting, forcing Kevin to move on. He was pushing her legs back, you know, and one of them went all the way back. What? Not all the way back, as in I've been doing a lot of yoga. I mean, as in my legs have no fucking bones in them. He thought he'd broken her leg, except there was no snap, no resistance at all. It just flopped back like it was made of fucking rubber or something. She's a fucking mutant, man. And he believed all that? Cindy wanted to know. No, Kevin said, still not looking at any of us. Not at first, but then last night. What happened? Benita asked. What did you do? You want to know what I did? What I fucking did? He held up his bandaged hand. I lost a fucking finger is what I did. Why don't you ask Lorna? Back at the Theta Pi house, Susie was sitting on the floor with her back pressed to the bathroom door. Lorna locked inside. Whatever happened, we told her. We'll deal with it together. When the door was finally unlocked, we found Lorna sitting on the edge of the bathtub, her skin the same color as the porcelain. Unable to help ourselves, we glanced at her bare feet on the tile floor, observing the clear and precise outline of her bones. I... I think there's something wrong with me. Carolyn knelt down by the edge of the bath, placed a hand gently on Lorna's bare knee. Her skin felt slick and rubbery, cold to the touch. Lorna, trembling, pulled the hem of her skirt up to her hips and parted her legs. From between the wet, pink folds of flesh slowly emerged something, ridged and black, hooked and sharp as a knife. What is it? asked Karen, ever the scholar. I think it's a beak, said Linda. Lorna dissolved into tears. The changes began to come more quickly after that. Lorna craved water constantly. When the water from her taps began to make her sick, Linda B. brought home a hydrometer and jugs of marine salt mix from the biology lab on campus and filled up the bathtub. At first, Lorna only slept in it, but soon she couldn't bear to leave it at all. She kept us company while we brushed our teeth, sat on the toilet, took turns washing our hair in the sink. We never minded sharing the space. We told her jokes, whispered secrets, rambled on about school or bad dates or our plans for after graduation, just as we always had. Each day, each of us would lean over the edge of the bath and let her place her hands against the skin of our arms. Gradually, her bones dissolved into the rubbery flesh of her limbs, surprising everyone how strong they were when they rose out of the water to embrace us. Tiny suckers grew on the pads of her hands that left tiny red hickeys on her skin wherever she'd touch us. Her skin became poreless and pliant, then translucent as smoked glass. That part was the hardest because of what it allowed us to see. The distorted outline of her spine as it shrank and shortened vertebra by vertebra until it was gone. She showed us pictures on her skin, 
galaxies of color and patterns, red and orange sunburst when she was happy and deep indigo when she was feeling melancholy. And when we were sad for her or for ourselves, she would reach out of the tub and coil one of her lengthening limbs around our arms or lay a suckered finger against our cheeks, leaving her tiny red kisses heart-shaped upon our skin. What would seem miraculous in hindsight was what small aspects of her human form remained, long after they seemed like they should be gone. Her hair, perpetually wet, but which Cindy combed and braided daily, didn't begin to fall out until after she had become almost entirely boneless. When it finally began to come out strand by strand in Cindy's comb, we were careful not to cry in front of Lorna. We were baffled by how this this of all things could seem so final. Lorna rarely ate, which Linda assured us was to be expected, and she only ate when alone. She would take the fresh crayfish Linda brought home and pass them along her suckers, hand to hand, but she wouldn't take them beneath the water towards her beak until after we were gone. We looked to Linda for an explanation, some factoid of Pacific cephalopod behavior or something that would justify any of this. I think she's embarrassed, Linda said, and we all burned with shame. When summer came, after much discussion and even more divining of Lorna's new kaleidoscope skin, we moved her from the bathtub into a 40-gallon plastic trash can full of salt water. From there, we transported her to the campus marine biology lab, to which Linda, recently accepted by a summer internship program, now had 24 access to. We would sit with Lorna, just watching her colors change as she drifted lazily amongst the coral and algae, and the bright flashing silver of the fish with whom she shared her tank. Sometimes we played music for her, and she would produce patterns on her skin in rhythm to demonstrate her delight. We would open her tank often, and she would emerge to embrace us, leaving her wet, slick kisses on our skin. Sometimes she splashed water at us, turning a friendly, playful orange. At other times, she surfaced slowly, reluctantly, her color a muddy green. What if she's unhappy here? Carolyn asked on a day when Lorna's skin was as smoky gray as the artificial rocks that lined the bottom of her tank. The tank is so small. How long can we keep her in there? As the days grew longer, graduation approached and Lorna surfaced to embrace us with ever-diminishing frequency. Her hands haven't changed yet, Linda observed. This was true, something we had all noticed. Her front two tentacles still forked into five at their very ends, maintaining the loose and boneless shape of human hands. As Lorna settled into her new form, we wondered if they would stay that way. At midnight, we carry her to the water. We take turns hefting the heavy, sloshing container, careful with it as a newborn babe. We drag it up the rocks, our hiking boots unsteady on the smooth, wet ground. We all look around for the best place to stop, until finally our flashlights converge on a wide crevice between two rocks filled in by the lapping tide. We lower Lorna's container into the crevice until its lip is level with the water. We unsnap the lid and Lorna extends an exploratory tentacle, flashes a happy crimson as she tastes the sea. 
One at a time, we kneel down before the parcel of ocean Lorna inhabits, letting her embrace us each one final time. Her kisses upon our cheeks we will cherish forever, even as they fade. Lorna, Carolyn whispers as Lorna's suckers pop gently against her face, tasting her warm salt tears. We'll never forget you. Lorna extends her six tapered tentacles into the ocean and slowly pushes herself over the lip of the container, out into the vastness of the open sea. Her two tentacles that still fork into five fingers, unique among all creatures of the ocean, are the last to slide over the edge of the tub with a splash. They rise up out of the water just once before she departs, giving us a final wave. For a long time afterwards, we wait there on the rocks, staring out into the ocean, wondering if we will ever see her again. That was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Let's close things out per usual this week with our 100 character story winner, this week by Dinosaur Monkey. Here goes. This is a 100 character story wherein 99 characters are killed in horrific ways. The final character is a sick and twisted one. Oh yeah, good stuff. Join in the fun at forums.drabblecast.org in the Twabble section, where you can submit yours. Perhaps we'll pick it for next week's winner. We'll post them out early on social media at Drabblecast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us. Good times. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Travelcast is brought to you with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes, blog about us, tell a friend, spread the weird. If you enjoyed our show this week, remember Travelcast relies on your listener support to keep going. We pay our authors professional rates. We enjoy doing so and helping creatives. Perhaps you do as well. Go to Travelcast.org, find the support options off the top of the page. You can help us by donating once at any amount or subscribing for a monthly $5 a month or $10 a month auto-deduction. It greatly helps us, and we appreciate it. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Travelcast art director Bo Kyer. Follow Bo on Instagram, at Bo Kyer. Our program this week was brought to you by Bo Kyer, Abby Hilton, Jason Smith, Jason Cavella, Maria Dong, Jen Fisher, Tom Baker, that reoccurring dream you have about the deer skeleton chasing you down the highway at night, screaming like a terrified woman, Adam Pratt, Sandra O'Dell, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you... Wanna know what I did? What I fucking did? <laughs> he held up his bandaged hand. I lost a fucking finger is what I did. Why don't you ask Lorna? <laughs> I can't with this line. <laughs>